and welcome to our podcast, Making Sense of Science, the show that features interviews with leading experts in health and science about the latest developments and the big ethical questions. I'm your host, Kira Peikoff, the editor of Leaps.org, and today we have a very exciting guest. We are going to be talking to Dr. George Church of Harvard, one of the world's leading pioneers in gene editing and synthetic biology. George, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I want to start by asking you about your famous woolly mammoth project, which has been in the news again recently. Um, after your new startup, aptly named Colossal, just raised $15 million for the project. Um, how are you feeling about this massive undertaking at the moment? Well, it's, uh, it's a little bit uh, scary, uh, but uh, I mean, from a performance standpoint, we, we We've been doing it on a shoestring budget, maybe a less than a percent of the of the laboratory effort, but now uh, we have a decent budget. is is comparable to some of my best funded uh, projects in the lab. That's exciting. So let me clarify a common misunderstanding right off the bat. So you aren't setting out to actually resurrect an extinct woolly mammoth with gene editing, right? So can you explain that? Yeah, it's more like an Arctic elephant, uh, some uh, elephant that's cold adapted. It can look and behave quite a bit like a mammoth for functional reasons only, just so that they can restore uh, a lot of the ecosystem that we think would be helpful for carbon sequestration. Uh, and also, it will be mostly an Asian elephant, so that's an endangered species. We'd like to contribute to them becoming a non-endangered species by giving them land that's far away from humans and resistance to herpes viruses. That latter doesn't depend on the uh, mammoth uh, at all for inspiration. Okay, so essentially the goal is to genetically modify an existing species of endangered Asian elephant to create a new species that shares some qualities with the mammoth that was alive many, many millennia ago. Right. Uh, although I'm not sure it would be a new species. I, I think it will still be interbreedable with the Asian elephant, and therefore the Asian elephant itself will become non-endangered if we're successful. So what would you say is the main, uh, the overarching purpose? Is it to keep the Asian elephant going? Is it to um, d deal with climate change in this interesting way? What is the overarching goal? I think uh, they're both. Uh, overarching goals. And then a third one is to develop new technologies. So that's mostly what our lab does, develop new technologies, for example, for reading and writing and editing DNA. And in this case, it would be reproductive technologies for making oocytes and, and bringing uh, artificial wombs uh, in, into veterinary and agricultural practice. So the artificial womb is fascinating, and I was going to jump to that, but I'll bring it up now anyway. Um, so just to walk our listeners through, your stages of this process, if all were to go according to plan, is you would genetically engineer an embryo, a hybrid embryo, basically, with Asian elephant with some mammoth-like traits, then implant it. You wouldn't be implanting it in a surrogate, right? You'd be ideally using an artificial womb. Right. Can you explain? Some people may have seen... Uh, artificial wombs that have delivered a lamb to to term, meaning to birth, uh, but that neglects the early stages of where you get in vitro fertilization and early development has also been shown, but we need to bridge those, uh, for, which for mammals is exceptional. Most vertebrates have, are, are, grow outside of the uh, adult uh, body, but most mammals uh, do not. 
So we're providing essentially, we're using some of our new technologies that we just published on being able to make almost any kind of cell to use it to make endometrial cells, which just means the cells that support embryo implantation, placental development, and hence uh, healthy uh, growth of the the embryo, blood flow through the umbilical cord. So would this be true ectogenesis, like truly development from embryo to live birth, totally outside of a live animal? That is that is the goal. Yes. Mm-hmm. And help us understand where what is the status of that kind of an undertaking at this point? Like, is it a complete moonshot or like you said, you, you could develop endometrial cells. But like, how big is it a leap to go from that to having a viable artificial womb? I'd say, I, yeah, I would not sugarcoat it or make it sound too easy. Uh, it is uh, a big leap. We have to have properly vascularized uh, endometrium so that, so that you'll get good uh, gas and food exchange. Uh, there, there are uh, gas exchange and, and food exchange programs that have been done for mice to get them to a fairly mature stage, but then it breaks down because they don't have proper uh, connection through a placenta to their umbilical cord. And then the lamb uh, experiments take over later, but that's where you're pumping directly into the umbilical cord. So there's, so we need to bridge those two. I, I'd, I'd say it's a little bit more than merely engineering. There's a little bit of science mixed in there, but we, we have to try. If we don't try, we will definitely fail. So some scientists have observed that with this woolly mammoth type of project, the artificial womb component might actually be the biggest hurdle, even more than the genetic engineering. Would you agree with that? I don't know if it's the biggest hurdle, but it's probably bigger than the genetic engineering hurdle. I, I agree. The genetic engineering is actually fairly routine. This whole project, except for the artificial womb, has effectively been done in pigs uh, by our team with the goal of 42 edits uh, in the germline of the pigs. And they've grown, you know, happily reproduce and, and are donating organs uh, at, at three hospitals so for uh, preclinical trials. So that can be done. It's just that with pigs, it's very easy to it's it's to get surrogates. They're they're very far from an endangered species, and and there's in that kind of reproductive surrogacy is routine. But with elephants, I think it would be challenging to scale up. So let me take a little tangent for a second. I want to hear more about the pigs and transplantation because um, unlike the woolly mammoth, which is more of like, seems like a pure science and research moonshot, this um, pigs is, as you said, in uh, clinical work right now. So that's truly impacting people's lives already, right? Well, not quite people's lives. This is preclinical primate trials, but it will be going into clinical human trials, hopefully very soon. And then it will impact the, the people in the clinical trials. Why use pigs for transplants? Well, they have uh, almost exactly the right size organs, uh, depending on the uh, age of the recipient. Um, and they're miniature pigs that have even smaller organs. And uh, they have similar physiology. Uh, they're accepted uh, already that pig valves uh, are used, not, not living valves, but they're used. And it, it's the husbandry, they, they have good big litter size and, and they breed at a, a young age. So it takes only three months and three weeks for gestation of the fetus. And it takes about six or seven months to get to sexual maturity. So using these pigs as organ donors essentially could theoretically help stem some of that 
waiting list of people waiting for organs? Yeah, so a fair number of people die while they're waiting for organs. It's a really, it's a, it's a shame. And, and also a lot of organs that are intended to be transplanted are rejected because they, uh, they haven't survived the, the whole process of transportation and time that elapses. Uh, also, in principle, since pig organs can be engineered from germline, they can be enhanced in various ways. They can be made resistant to the disease that killed the original organ. They can uh, um, be made maybe cancer resistant, senescence resistant. We know how to do these things in animals uh, if we have access to the germline, um, but they're, 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 and we can make them uh, more immune. Uh, tolerant, tolerized, so that you can have a universal donor. All of these things would be very difficult to do and essentially impossible to do in humans right, right at, with current uh, technology. Right. Well, I imagine growing a human with specific uh, resistance would, would be, be pretty unacceptable, ethically. right, to test yes, that. Right, exactly. Um, yes. So for these, these people on transplant lists, could they theoretically in the future be able to have a pig grown just for them with their own... DNA so that's not rejected? Uh, we're working on various ways of, of increasing tolerance and, and avoiding rejection. At a minimum, we should be able to get it to the point where we're using normal immune suppression, the same thing that we use if we could transfer organ between two compatible humans. Two compatible humans are not perfectly compatible, so there's typically immune suppression that's used. But we could think we can go beyond that, not necessarily by growing a, a, a pig for you, but having a, a pig that's universal, just like they're universal blood donors. Uh, um, so that's where we're headed with it. Do you think that patients would be open to organs from pigs or are you, do you think that there would be any resistance to that idea? Well, I'm, I'm sure there's resistance to every technology. There's sort of people who don't, you know, drive cars, um, but there also could be, uh, although I think it's minor for that reason, there, there could be religious uh, concerns, although uh, I've seen comments made that uh, both Jewish and Islamic scholars have, have approved use of pig valves uh, in animal valves in general in, in uh, principle that saving a, a human life is, is uh, important and you're not consuming them as a food. So that is done routinely, as I understand it, uh, in, in many different uh, people of many different religions. So that's encouraging. Um, and how far off do you think we are to having this technology available to uh, any organ patient that needs one? That I don't know. It depends on the outcome of the preclinical and then the clinical trials. Typically, one sets expectations at a minimum of 10 years. In other words, if it fails, obviously more than 10 years. There are some cases where it goes a little bit more quickly than that. For example, the COVID-19 vaccine only took 11 months to get through its clinical trials. It'll hopefully be somewhere in between. Okay, well, we'll be watching that space. Um, I want to go back to the mammoth for a minute. So the artificial womb, uh, it's fa it fascinates me because as human beings, that's a technology that could save so many premature babies, mothers who can't continue pregnancies. Uh, that could be a technology that's really indispensable for humanity. So I'm really, I'm very excited to see if your team can make progress towards that becoming a reality. 
that's certainly not our initial priority, but, but we are always interested in ways that our animal experiments can be used in humans and vice versa, where the things that technology we develop for human health can be used in animals. And in fact, this uh, both the pig and the mammoth project benefited tremendously from things that we develop for human therapies, like CRISPR, next-gen sequencing, and, and so on. Right. And so you mentioned earlier, and you've said in, in lots of other interviews, that the Mammoth Project is intended to combat the effects of climate change. Can you explain how that would work? This is partially based on some ideas and some field studies done by Sergei Zimov and his son Nikita Zimov in uh, near Chersky, which is northern Siberia. I'll tell you the hypothesis first is that when the mammoths were around, there was mostly grass and very few trees. And what we have now is a crisis of 1,400 gigatons of carbon being released, a lot of it in the form of methane, and producing an unwanted positive feedback loop with negative outcomes, which is that the, the methane is 30 times worse than carbon dioxide in warming, and then the warming will release more methane and so forth. And there's 1,400 gigatons. Put in perspective, the whole human race uses about 10 gigatons a year. So this is this would be an enormous impact. The transition that occurred a few thousand years ago, partially due to human eating all the herbivores, uh, or killing them anyway, not necessarily eating them, uh, was that the... Uh, grass reflects the light while the trees are black bark and they absorb the light and heat. Uh, they also allow high, uh, thick insulating layer of snow, which protects the ground from getting frozen properly in the wintertime. Uh, and the grass is better at photosynthesis, meaning each year a layer gets sequestered which doesn't happen in the, in the rainforests, which are about 500 times shallower carbon resource because it's just constantly turning over. While in the Arctic, it freezes and another layer grows on top of that and the deep grass roots um, just keep accumulating. So there's three major reasons. And, and then they've done experiments at Pleistocene Park where they've cleared with great effort uh, the trees and uh, introduced a lot of the missing herbivores, but the main one that's missing is the herbivore that can knock down the trees. And it's pretty expensive and, and di difficult for humans to knock down the trees, even with tractors. But elephants do this uh, with great ease. They seem to enjoy knocking down trees, even when they're not planning on eating the leaves at the top, which is presumably the reason. But they'll just knock them down. And, and the trees in the Arctic are very small anyway. So the mammoths are superior to the elephants just because they can thrive in colder temperatures? So we're, we're making Arctic elephants, and the, the, the mammoths are inspiration that the elephants can thrive in the cold. We're looking for as many edits as it takes to, to get that cold tolerance. Uh, so we're not de-extincting a species, but de-extincting genes, and two of those genes have already been de-extincted and shown to be appropriate for the cold. So that's, that's validation that we're moving in the right direction. So that's something I don't feel like I understand. How can you ascertain whether the edits you're making will yield the cold tolerance traits that you want without having the live births to observe them? Well, for some things you will need live births, but for the two that have been done so far from the Schuster group and the Campbell group are uh, TRIP V3, which is a... a a nerve ending molecule, uh, which tell, which is sensing the cold. 
and the hemoglobin uh, is even clearer um, where, where you have uh, the exchange of oxygen is highly temperature dependent and most animals have a hemoglobin blood uh, oxygen exchange which is not suited for close to the freezing point and indeed most of the body of the elephant and mammoth is uh, sort of body temperature 34 to 70, 37 centigrade um, but the periphery which there's quite a lot of um, is it does not do proper oxygen exchange without this these mutations in the hemoglobin so so you can test that uh, you don't even need a cell to test that. That can be done in vitro. While the trip V3, you need to have a some kind of cell, ideally a, a neuron. So how do you go from making these edits um, in the Asian elephant genome to having an embryo? We're developing in the lab ways of going from skin cells or blood cells to stem cells. Like uh, this is routine, actually, for many animals, not yet for elephants. Uh, and then from stem cells to oocytes. And then the, uh, we can engineer the stem cells to be to have multiple changes, uh, sometimes called multiplex editing. We did this for the pigs. We, we'll, we'll do it for the elephant stem cells. And then we'll make uh, oocytes and either do in vitro fertilization or, or some similar, uh, probably in vitro fertilization. And then it, it implants in the endometrial cells where it gets blood or blood equivalents until it gets large enough that it could be converted over to something like the lamb system and then grown to term birth. So at birth, elephants can weigh 200 pounds. So that would be a pretty huge artificial womb. Uh, well, the lamb is a pretty large womb as well. I mean, these are these are not small animals like mice. We, we, we're starting with mice uh, mainly because they have a short gestation period. But uh, this is an industrial process. That's why it's called colossal. Uh, it, it, uh, it's not that much harder to do a large thing than a small thing. What's hard in this case is doing anything, any mammal at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you think in the future that, like, as far as just moving away from animals for a minute, do you think that real people will ever actually use an artificial womb for gestation if, like, let's say it's medically indicated? Do you think that's plausible? Uh, I think it's it's possible, yeah. I mean, it, it will it, it will have to be shown to be extremely safe and and, uh, and effective for whatever the uh, problem is. Uh, it'll have to go through all the normal hoops that uh, medical devices uh, and medical um, and drugs go through. I'm sure lots of our listeners are thinking like brave new world kind of dystopian era, but I think there's actually a lot of positivity that could come from an invention like that. Yeah, I think there's enough people watching and thinking and weighing in on this. And the nice thing about talking about these things transparently in advance is we have plenty of time to think of all the negative scenarios. Um, I'm a big fan of movies that create negative scenarios because in a certain sense, they help us think it, think it through. Uh, so I, I think the Brave New World scenario, I, I don't think we're tempted to create people that are less capable, less healthy than they could be, which was one of the premises uh, that I just I just don't buy into. But you know, we'll have to be cautious. Sure, and, I, and I'm sure your team is thinking about unintended consequences of these edits and how they affect animals. And how are you thinking about that? Well, part of it, we're getting experience with editing animals as opposed to just editing cells, which is most of the editing in the world. 
uh, in the complex physiology and systems biology, systems medicine, one has to take into account. We got that experience with the pigs, and we're continuing to, and it's even more complex system than just the whole pig. It's the pig interacting with the humans. So it's, it's essentially, we have to think about the systems biology of two different species that really have quite incompatible blood clotting and complement, which is another blood component, the immune system, the, the sugars on the surface of the cells cause a, an immediate reaction. But we think we've, we've solved all those now, and so we're getting more sophisticated at systems thinking, for a, uh, in, in this case, a, a two-species system. Okay, interesting. So now that you have this project um, well-funded, what do you expect realistically in terms of timing? Well, in the past, I've dodged that question completely because we didn't have funding. So now it's uh, it behooves us to be a little more thoughtful. And the CEO, Ben Lamb, projects six years. I think that's not completely out of It's a very aggressive number. It's not completely out of the question. We've, it'll take at least two years for the gestation at the end. It could easily take two years to work out the the mouse version of the artificial womb, um, and then two years in between for debugging the transition from mouse to elephant. And then if you were to repopulate this herd in the in the Arctic, you'd need how many of these animals created? So that's an interesting question. The, the number of mammoths that existed per square kilometer was upwards of one. Uh, I don't think we need anywhere near that number because a number of groups have studied migrations of elephants and mammoths and one in particular has, has estimated that mammoths could go around the, the earth two times in their lifetime. So if you, if you calculate how much to get, say, a million square kilometers, which would be 5% of the Arctic, that might be possible to do with low hundreds of animals, maybe low thousands uh, if we want to do it much faster. But I don't think we're limited to that. I think it, we could scale up whatever it is, uh, whatever that is appropriate for the, the governmental and uh, enthusiasm of uh, people, uh, which, which we need to consult with. And would they eventually just be mating with each other? So you're not Correct. stuck creating like a hundred of them in your lab, right? That's right. The, the idea would get as many as possible at the beginning because the climate change we're dealing with is not waiting for us. But then after that, if a thousand is enough to, to make an impact on global warming, that would be terrific. But that the, that's just still endangered because there's, you know, 50 plus thousand already. So to really get to out of the endangered, we'd have to probably double that at least. Um, and so uh, there's plenty of space for them, though. There were millions of them uh, historically. And, and the, the places where they would be going are, are uh, mostly uninhabited. Um, but we would have to make sure that they stay where they're supposed to stay. And we're thinking of various training protocols uh, and guidance with uh, foods that they like to eat and things like that. So what do you say to skeptics of this project? Like either it's it's too wildly ambitious or it's never going to really impact climate change. I'm sure you hear these these things. So what's your response? Well, I think skepticism is definitely uh, appropriate. Uh, I, I like to be skeptical at the same time I'm doing it anyway. And we've done quite a few projects that were, I think, greeted with even more skepticism than this, uh, like you know, nanopore sequencing and 
getting everybody their genome when when it looked like it was going to cost more than three billion dollars per genome. This seems closer to ordinary engineering and uh, you know sort of agricultural species. Whether it have an impact on climate change. To that, I say, you know, I would enthusiastically join somebody who has a better plan. Uh, you know, we, we need plans not just for slowing down the inevitable heat death, but uh, of reversing it. We need to get maybe not all the way back to pre-industrial levels. But we definitely need to get back uh, some of the carbon. And so that means we can't be just pumping methane out of the, Ar of the vast Arctic regions and, and doing nothing to sequester. Well, this will hopefully do both. And then the scale of it really just depends on the will of, of the governments and the people. And if they don't want it, then we'll end up with some zoo oddities. Uh, but if they do want it, then we'll scale up as fast as possible. Do you think we'll ever edit humans to adapt to extreme climates or to space for that matter? Yeah, I, I think we will. Um, we may choose to edit them at the adult level. Um, there's a lot of reasons to uh, edit at the adult level. Uh, I mean, for example, most of us are adults, and uh, and if we want to be uh, enhanced, as vaccines are, I think, a huge enhancement in our immune system, um, we might want to be enhanced so that we don't undergo cognitive decline, which is going to be a huge problem for our aging society. But it could be a huge opportunity if we can't, because it takes so long to train. I mean, I'm barely trained at age 67. Um, it seems like a pity to pull the plug on me tomorrow. So maybe uh, it's an opportunity to, to have that training pay off a little bit. And the same thing goes for space. You know, things that will would be considered a luxury on Earth will be life and death in space. So uh, ability, you know, to, to really resist osteoporosis that happens in microgravity. Uh, even the microgravity that exists on planets like Mars is much lower than Earth, and it could cause causes problem with fluid distribution in bones, not just microgravity, but also radiation. Um, it's, it's hard to do shielding that we take for granted on Earth. So I think those two things will be high priorities, but they could be done via uh, gene therapies the same way that, in a certain sense, our vaccines are a form of a gene being delivered uh, and enhancing us. So, you know, as you rightly stated that the vaccines are enhancing us and protecting us, yeah, we see so many people um, reluctant to take them. Yeah, vaccines is important for everybody to cooperate because it's a herd immunity that you have to get a certain number to have impact. And also, if you have a few that are not vaccinated, they provide an incubation that allows us to get uh, strong variants. But for the things that you are asking about, the non-vaccine enhancements that it might be necessary for uh, healthy aging and space, they don't have to. I mean, there's, there's, I don't think there's any reason to force people to have a good life by somebody else's definition. Um, but vaccines are definitely a, a special case. That's a public health threat um, when you allow your kids to become incubators for measles. Right. So when you're talking about healthy aging, though, how do you test something like that um, in someone who has a pretty long lifespan as it is, and let alone like how do we know if it's going to harm them? So how can they actually consent to trying, even if you had something ready to try? Terrific question. And I have an answer, uh, which is that we are not framing this in terms of longevity at all. We're framing it in terms of aging reversal, specifically of major diseases that maybe a dozen major diseases 
that have nothing in common other than that they are age-related. And aging affects almost every, every source of morbidity and mortality. If we get these major diseases, then, then, then that's absolute standard fare for the FDA. Rather than tr twisting their arm and saying, please recognize aging as a, as a disease, and oh, by the way, we're going to take perfectly healthy people and expose them to risk. Instead, we're going to take people who are desperately ill and reverse it, and that's their standard. You know, They're comfortable with that. And then if we do have something that hits at the core of aging, it gets approved for a specific disease, but you get all the rest for free. So that's that's our roadmap, and you know I have you know a couple of companies that are working on this, like uh, Rejuvenate Bio, BioViva, and so on. So what stage are is that research in? Is it just very, very, very early stage right now? Well, it depends on what you call early. Uh, it's it. So the Rejuvenate Bio has passed through the mouse stage and is now in clinical trials for dogs. Dogs will be a veterinary product, so that's very close to a uh, something that many people will appreciate, and then, and then that may even partially help pay for uh, the, the beginnings of the human clinical trials. Wait, let me, let me stop you right there. Are you saying that you are creating dogs that can live a lot longer than a normal dog? Again, we're not doing longevity, we're doing aging reversal. You have to get FDA approval for veterinary products as well. It tends to be much less expensive and faster. That's one advantage to the dogs. But yes, we it wouldn't be the first time that dogs get better medicine than humans. Another example is Lyme disease. That for some reason or other, humans got deceived by some fake data uh, linking MMR vaccine with autism. As that was disambiguated, they admitted that they had uh, fraudulently made up the data. Uh, it was too late for the Lyme disease, but there's a new Lyme disease that will come out. But in the meantime, dogs have had Lyme disease vaccine. Wow. Well, I know my dog has better health insurance than a lot of people do. So that's also another thing. But And also pets in the United States, the amount of meat they eat puts them in like the fifth largest meat eating country in the world. Wow. If, if it were a country. <laughs> yeah. So our, our animals consume a lot of resources. There's some loss in... Uh, resources you go from plants to animal food. So George, you're basically telling uh, our audience that you want to help reverse climate change, reverse aging, and give us pets that can stick around for a lot longer. I mean, basically be like humanity's hero if you could do all of these things. Oh, and fix organ transplants. Well, we're just trying to do our job, not trying to avoid true heroism. Uh, and there, there are plenty of genuine heroines that, that go into, say, burning buildings and uh, enemy fire. Ours is fairly low risk and we, we can we can stop whenever we want if it doesn't look like it's working. Okay, so let me just wrap up. We've pretty much gotten away this whole conversation without talking about COVID, but I have to ask, how did you do after you gave yourself a DIY vaccine last year? So uh, that was fine. Uh, we have not yet secured funding for turning this into a large clinical trial, so we're really quite behind uh, other forms of vaccine. We're ahead in the sense that it was very flexible. We, we've done 10 different generations of that vaccine in the time that there's been, we're still stuck back at the original vaccines from for the ones that are in common use, and that's probably appropriate. So I like the flexibility aspect. In principle, you could do do-it-yourself messenger RNA vaccines. Uh, ours was a peptide vaccine. You know, I think it's still an, it's still an open question uh, as to uh, whether the world is is ready for that. But you could imagine something where just going outside the house to get the vaccine could be hazardous, in which case you 
might want to be able to print it at home or, or at least locally. That would be that would be quite a game changer. So, did you ever go out and get the um, mRNA vaccine? Oh, of course. I mean, I, I, I've, I've I've had both vaccines. Yeah. And what do you think about the booster discussion these days? So, some vaccines give you lifetime, basically lifetime protection, uh, or at least many decades. Uh, coronaviruses have. There's been evidence even before the current Corona pandemic. That they were they they were not lasting. The durability, perdurance of the vaccine was poor. So I think we're going to need probably not just boosters every decade, but maybe boosters every year. That's quite possible. So even everybody, you think everybody will need that? I think probably everybody will need that. Uh, there may be some some personalization or precision medicine that might uh, change that a little bit. Uh, we could do it. We could wait until your antibodies decay. So then it's the question of the cost of the test versus the cost of the vaccine. The vaccine is re- is remarkably low cost for for was something that's essentially a gene therapy, a synthetic RNA. It's fifteen dollars a dose. And I think I, I'm thankful that people are paying attention to cost. What would do we need it for everybody? I think the real question is how do we get everybody their first two doses before we start messing around with? I mean, we need boosters. We just it shouldn't be considered a zero-sum thing. Was we should really be pushing to get education, distribution, manufacturing scale, and so forth as part of the whole booster conversation. I think you're right, and, and the fact is that there's so much in- misinformation about the vaccines. Even if you say something like gene therapy, I think a lot of people might think, "Oh, it's going to change my DNA," and we know that's not true. But uh, what would you tell people who are still at this point reluctant and not sure? Your DNA changes all the time. Probably no two cells in your body are the same. Vaccines of all sorts do change your immune system's DNA, the B cells and T cells. It's not the sort of thing that they're worrying about, I think, but it, just just to be totally transparent, vaccines are probably the lowest risk medical intervention in the world. I mean, but I don't think this has to do with real risk assessment. I think it has to, to do with identity who you are, who you identify with, and most people are willing to risk their life for certain things. Uh, so it, it's, we should stop saying that somebody's ignorant or irrational. I mean, they just have a different game that they're playing. So what the illustrations I gave before, firefighters will risk their life for that cause. It's, it's not completely ridiculous to risk your life. It's just in this case, it's causing a public health threat. Um, where you're influencing more than just your own personal decision, uh, you're affecting other people. And I think that's like yelling fire in a crowded theater. It's not funny. It's not responsible. How to, how to convey that, I don't, I don't know. I mean, what, what has happened sometimes in the past is communities where an entire town will decide not to vaccinate, and then they'll have a measles outbreak. And measles is bad because it reduces your immunity for a variety of other diseases. And then they learn their lesson and they and they change. Uh, that's what has happened. I mean, there's been anti-vaxxers all the way back to the first vaccine with Jenner and Pasteur, um, and they typically paid the consequences. It's, it's, there was no alternative to the school of hard knocks. So what's your take? And, and then I, I will let you go because you've been very generous with your time. But I can't help but asking, since you're one of the most interesting people I ever get to interview, um, what's your take on the young kids soon probably able to access the vaccine, given their Cost benefit is a little different for kids than adults, right? I don't know. I, I don't know what the, the cost benefit is. Probably different, but I'm not sure which direction. Uh, 
kids uh, get a lot of exposure through school that adults maybe don't get. The kids share spit a lot more, uh, well, maybe different ways <laughs> than adults do. I think it's very important to get kids vaccinated. I mean, most of the vaccines in the world are for children, um, and this probably should be no exception. So if you had a young kid and they got approved, would you be one of the first in line to get the COVID? Uh, I, I have two granddaughters, and I think my daughter is very excited about getting them vaccinated, and I am too. Well, same. Luckily, I have a son who's turning five, probably right around the time this is going to get approved. So he might be one of the first. You do want it to go through the clinical trials first. It, it, should, it should not be rushed. I don't think the adult was rushed. It did go through emergency use authorization, but I think it was perfectly done. It was done just just the right balance between getting it getting it out. I think that, you know, the kid sample size of the trial was so much smaller in the low thousands of kids. So uh, do you, given that the vaccine, though, has been used in billions of people already, is that an issue or not really? Well, kids tend to be a little more resilient in general. I'm glad I'm not making that decision. I mean, I very uh, enthusiastic about the public health experts and the and the FDA making these decisions and I think we should continue to support them rather than second guessing them. Okay. When do you think that this whole pandemic is actually going to end or at least the acute phase of it will end? It depends on what you mean by acute phase, but back in 2020 I predicted 2022 and that might have been optimistic. You know, I think it could end up being like influenza. It's, it's currently killing a lot more people than influenza. So I think if you mean acute means dropping down to influenza level, uh, that could happen in the next year. But dropping both of them below current influenza level would be nice, you know, less than hundreds of thousands of people per year uh, should be a goal for us. And I think if we learned some lessons, you know, like it's really not so hard to wear a mask. I mean, we cover almost every other part of our body. Uh, it's not that hard. We could use that to reduce flu. Uh, in fact, it's amazing how, much, how few people are getting uh, flu uh, these days. I, I haven't had any symptoms of any disease the entire time, the, the, the last 20 months. So that's good. Do you think flu is going to make a comeback this year or are measures? Depends on how people behave. You know, <laughs> if, they, if, if they keep masking and social distancing and, you know, uh, then then we could have one of the lowest flu seasons in, in history. But if we do risky behavior, then it could be the worst. So it's worth your saying basically get a COVID booster and get a flu shot this year. Yep, definitely. All right. Well, thank you, George, for, as always, a fascinating talk. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you like the show, follow Making Sense of Science to hear our new episodes once a month. And if you want to give us feedback, check us out on our website, leaps.org. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>